Turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John this morning, to the book of 1 John, as we continue in our series that we've entitled Invisible War, Winning Against Evil. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you. And as we have in the last couple weeks, we're going to be bouncing all over the scriptures, looking at what different uh, uh, writers have to say about uh, uh, this war that we are fighting. And so try to follow along to the best of your ability. Probably the best thing to do is have a pen ready on that sermon outline sheet to write the passages down, and then at a later time you can go back and, and look to them for yourselves. But in the Pew Bible, you can find our passage on page 1021, page 1021, 1 John chapter uh, 2, and we're going to be looking at verses uh, 15 through 17. Well, as we look at this series and uh, look at this issue of spiritual warfare in our lives, uh, we've come to the grips that, number one, we're in a war. We learned that in week one. Number two, we learned we have enemies. And uh, we're in the process right now of looking at all the different enemies that we have uh, as Christians. Last week we looked at, if you will, enemy number one, the devil and his demons and how they operate and how they got their start and, and where they will find their finish in this battle But now we turn to a more subtle enemy, an enemy that seemingly is all around us. We come into contact with this enemy every day that we live our lives. Uh, This enemy is what the Bible calls the world. And before we begin to think that this war has to do with our our, uh, um, fellow human beings, we are reminded that in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says that this wrestling that we do in this warfare is not against flesh and blood. This isn't against people. This isn't against the people on the other side of the political spectrum. It isn't people uh, on another uh, continent that we may find ourselves at odds with. Uh, This war that we're talking about is a war against rulers and authorities and against the cosmic powers that are over the present darkness that we find ourselves in. It's the spiritual forces of evil. And uh, for those that maybe have never understood that, whatever takes place in the heavenly realms has ramifications on what's going on in the physical realm. What I mean by that is since there's been a rebellion in the spiritual realm, there will be, until God sees fit to end it all, that, that there will be a rebellion here on earth. And the reason why rebellion is such a big part of our lives this morning is that we've got an enemy that seeks to destroy the lives of people. And this enemy we're going to talk about this morning is the enemy of the world. Uh, Listen to the words of 1 John this morning. In fact, go ahead and stand for the, the reading of God's word as we look at verses 15 through 17 of 1 John 2. Here's what John says to the church of yesterday and today. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, the pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Father God, we ask once again... Uh, your blessing on our time together. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to gather and to remember who you are, to remember what you have done for us. Thank you for the opportunity of gathering us together as, as people under the banner of Jesus Christ, that we might encourage one another this morning. That we may love and spur one another on towards good deeds. That we may open your word and, and hear from you the message you have for both the preacher and the people in the pew. Lord, I pray that, that as we look at this, we would take some serious stock into our own lives, into this enemy of the world that we would be able to push back the veil of of some of the deception that the world has has shown us and see what is really going on, that we may know what your good and pleasing will is, that we, as John says, may abide in your word forever. So, Lord, I pray again a blessing on the reading of your word, the teaching of it. Lord, I pray that we as a people would apply its truths quickly this morning. 
into every facet of our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In 1898, H.G. Wells wrote what many literature uh, people would say is the first real science fiction story in all of history. It's, in fact, one of the first mentions in literature of any kind of extraterrestrial creatures involving themselves with humanity. In his classic, H.G. Wells wrote the story, War of the Worlds. And he tells the story of Martians coming down to Earth and systematically bringing the world as we know it to an end. He writes with vivid uh, words and, and a vivid vocabulary how these Martians would go from city to city, home to home, seeking to exterminate the human race. While the book had a great deal of success in written form, it wasn't until really 1938 when a radio show that was narrated by Orson Welles would cause such a stir. As these words were then put into some sort of dramatic reading, people during that day began to find themselves being worked up into a mass hysteria. Could it really be that we might have an unknown and unseen enemy about us, ready to destroy us at a moment's notice? People were gripped by fear that this unseen enemy could do such damage in a world that we live in. Now, while science fiction of Martians and alien ships coming to Earth are entertaining in the movies and even in our literature, I want to remind you this morning that we live in a world where there is a war of the worlds going on. And it's a fierce battle. And sadly, in this war of the worlds, it's not a battle between unnamed and unseen Martians. But it's a battle like that that we fought during the days of the Civil War. A battle that is fought between family, parents and children, between neighbors and friends. It's a battle that we see fought in the media. It's a battle we see fought in our schools and in our workplaces. We see this battle being fought in the arena of of athletics and in the halls of academia. And as we've seen this week, it's being fought in the highest court of the land. There's a clear and present danger, Village Bible Church, that shouldn't lead us to mass hysteria, but it should lead us as Christians to be sober-minded in our realization that there is a war going on, that it is a fierce battle, and it is one that God has called each of us as Christians to be a part of, to be ready to face the enemy, even though he may be unseen at times. Now the problem with the world is, the world is a subtle enemy. It's an enemy that many times we don't see uh, what the world is doing until we see the damage that has already been done. And this damage that is done by this world, this enemy, is damage that's done by both non-believers and believers alike. Our series so far has focused in on us finding victory in this spiritual battle that we're facing. So we've sought, first of all, to identify each of the enemies, and we'll do so again next week. But then we've asked the question, how does that enemy operate? What tools does that enemy use to uh, get its job accomplished? And then we need to ask the question, what's our response going to be? And so that has been the teaching team's outline. Identify the enemy, remind people that we're in a war, see what the enemy does, and see how we're going to respond through the power of God's Spirit and His Word to find victory. And so that's what I want to do this morning surrounding this issue, this enemy called the world. So let's first of all define who the enemy is. When the Bible speaks of this enemy as the world, it it tells us that this world, if you will, is a place that we should not love, that when we love this thing called the world, we become enemies with God. Even if we find ourselves as friends with the world, we find ourselves at enmity, at, at uh, odds with the God of the universe. But we have to ask the question this morning, what is this world? I mean, is, is, is John telling us that, that we can't love the physical world that we live in? That we can't go to the Grand Canyon and look at it and say, I can't love you. 
I, I, I can't even look at you. You are unworthy. You're dirty. Is that what, what uh, John is telling us? No. You see, when the Bible speaks of the world, and it does so almost 200 times, I believe it's about 185 different times in the New Testament, the word world in the Greek literally means the order of things or how something is ordered. And so when it talks about the world, it's not saying our enemy is the physical world. The earth, the, the physical world that we live in, yes, is under a curse, but still is something, though it may be marred by the curse, is of immense beauty and goodness. And nowhere in the scripture are we called to say, uh, to hate that element of the world. In fact, we are to, in some ways, join that physical earth as it groans for its own redemption. As Jesus said, if we will not praise Christ, the rocks will cry out. And so we are partners in many ways with that physical world as it gives glory to the one and only true God and his son, Jesus Christ. But what is this world? This world is not the earth that we live upon. So let's get a definition. Probably the easiest definition I can help you with this morning with regards to the world is the following. The world, I'll write this down, the world is a society or symptom or system. That, that man has built in order to make himself happy without God. It's a society or system that man has built in order to make himself happy without God. Man has, cre- has been created by God for a purpose. The great catechism, Westminster Catechism and Confession, says that man was created to worship God and enjoy God forever. The world says, because of sin and because of its sway, that our job as human beings is to worship self and enjoy self forever. And so what we do is we devalue God and the world elevates man. It tells us as human beings to live in direct contradiction to God and his word. God says, worship me, give me praise, give me adoration, and I will take care of all that you need. I will give you all that you require in this life. I will bring you joy and peace and contentment. I want to lavish upon you my love. But just as in the garden, as is every day today amongst human beings, We say no to God and we say yes to self. And the Bible helps us to understand how this gets all played out. First of all, I want you to see a couple things about this system. Number one, it reaches all corners of the earth. It is really easy for us this morning to reel from a Supreme Court decision and say the world resides here in America. And that may be true. But I want to remind you this morning that if your view of worldliness only goes as far as from sea to shining sea, then you have a myopic view of what the world system is all about. As I looked this morning in our sanctuary, and I'm not going to try to find them this morning, but I know they're here, I'm going to ask them to answer this question for me this morning. And uh, when you hear your name and, and, and where you're from, I, I want you to answer very honestly, because if you honestly say, no, it's not happening, I'm going to move there. But, but, uh, but we've got uh, uh, Megan, she's somewhere, where's Me- Megan? Alaska, is the world, the world and its systems that devalues God and elevates man, is it alive and well in Alaska? Absolutely. We've got, uh, where are the Hellwigs at? Hellwigs, where are the Hellwigs? Hey, Hellwigs, you've spent some time where? Help us, where have you been? Philippines, is the world and its system alive and well there as it is here in America? Yeah. We've got uh, the Nichols, Tanzania, you, you guys dealing with the world over there? Stronger every day. We, we can go on and on. We've got uh, Carney. I saw Carney walk in here today. Where's Carney at? Is he out? There you go. Carney in Liberia. Did you guys struggle with the world over there? All right. Okay. So I'm going to need all of you to stay for the second service so you can do that again. <laughs> but here's what I want to remind us this morning. This is a battle that was being fought in first century Palestine just as it's being fought in 21st century Kane County, Illinois. 
And it's a world system that doesn't just happen here in America. It's happening all over the world. And so when we lament what's happening, we need to be reminded that our brothers and sisters all over the world are lamenting uh, the world system and all of its uh, tentacles, if you will, of how it seeks to destroy God and his kingdom. Now, some of us think that maybe the world's only getting worse, and, and we think about worldliness, and we look and say, it's only getting worse, and it'll never get better. better. I want to remind you, though, that as we look at human history, and this is important in a week for us as Americans to remember, we seem to think that this is what's happening to the world, and it just keeps going down like this. I want to remind you that God in his sovereignty does a couple different things. Number one, at times of great moral and spiritual decay, God does his greatest work. And we need to be reminded, and we don't need to look very far, that under the, the intense tension and pressure that Chairman Mao had over the Chinese people, that the Chinese church grew more than it ever had in human history. We need to remember that. We need to remember now that in in nations where the word of God is suppressed, that revival is breaking out. We need to be reminded that even during some of the darkest times of American history, we experienced great revivals that overtook an entire nation and moved a people back to God amidst times of great turmoil. So yes, the world is busy and it's active, affecting all areas and aspects of, of, of creation and all aspects of humanity. But we also must recognize that amidst those times, God always has the final answer. A couple other things we need to remember this morning about this world. We need to recognize it's a kingdom and it has a ruler. This world it has, is a kingdom it's a structure, it's a system, it's a, it has its own government, if you will. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, we are told that this world has a God, small g, and that God, small g, is the devil himself. We are reminded in Ephesians chapter 2, in fact, turn there for a moment, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, if you're in the book of 1 John, go to your left. And uh, midway through the New Testament, you'll find the book of Ephesians. If you're following in the Pew Bible, page 976, page 976, Paul says this about the world and a reminder of what is taking place. He says in verse 1 of Ephesians 2, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. But notice he says the course of this world is following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So the devil has been given for a season of time a level of authority where he is exacting his rule and authority into the lives of humanity through a world system. And so he has opportunity to uh, share with his subjects his focuses, his agenda, and his goal. And he does so in many ways in a way that is outside of just the human understanding, the power of the prince of the air gives this idea that it's happening in all places as there's air in the world. Every cubic inch of this world, there's air. So in every cubic uh, square inch, if you will, of this uh, great world, you have the realm of the devil actively at work in the lives of people. I was struck by this truth because many of us will say, and we'll get to this in a moment, but I don't want to miss it, that I just need to get rid of all the worldly elements. I need to just get away from all of that. Well, we have a missionary, Ben and Missy Hatton, who are in New Guinea. And they are working with a group of people who had never seen a white individual in their life. Many of them only have experienced some involvement with other tribes who are not a part of any other connection to the real world. And what Ben told me in his email when he first got there was, is the devil is there just as he was back in his home state of Michigan. That the same issues, the same lusts and the same desires, the same rebellion that's going on in an unreached people group 
is happening with the reached people group in the same manner and in the same way. Why? Because the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking for people to devour. Notice a couple other things about this uh, system, this society. It, It endorses rampant evil. Probably the best description of the world is found in Judges 21-25, where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. The world loves it when we live in anarchy. The world loves it when man is supreme and God is suppressed. In Ephesians 2-2, if you're still there, you see that the world longs for people to live in disobedience where people are not led by God and his holy word, but they are led by their passions, carrying out the desires of the flesh, which we'll talk about next week. You can find evil. Where you find evil, you will find the world advertising its craft. Because of this, God says, because of its singular commitment to evil, God calls in Galatians 1-4 the age we live in as an evil age. One that is devoid of goodness. Now that again doesn't mean that you can't find goodness in the world, but it is a goodness that is marred because of sin. But notice this world is something we need to be rescued from. It is something we need to be rescued from. It is so important for us to remember this week, as we watch our different media, as we read our different platforms of social media, it's easy for you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, to separate ourselves from this world and look at the world and its sin and its debauchery with disdain and an air of superiority. It's easy for us to see it is about us and against them. But the only reason why you and I are on the side of Jesus and not the world, Galatians 1, 3, and 4 tells us, write that down, Galatians 1, 3, and 4 tells us the only reason why you're with Christ and not in the world is because he has single-handedly rescued you and me from this world. And so before we begin to think, well, well, I, I came to a realization that sin is sin. I came to a realization that, that holiness is better than, than debauchery. Let's be reminded that, as Paul said, we were just like them in the way we used to walk. You see, when we look to the world and we see its sin and we see its debauchery, our hearts should be filled with anguish and pain always remembering that we were once there as well. That we were once a part of that way of living. And if it wasn't for Jesus, we would still be there today. And so because of this world, and because of Christ and his kingdom, we've got a war of the worlds. And it's one that is fierce. It's a battle that you have to choose sides. You cannot stay uh, on one side and then bounce to the other. And so uh, this issue with this world and this system requires, it requires us to make a choice. The Bible makes it clear that the world, even friendship with the world, is an affront and in direct opposition to the will and word of God. Therefore, you and I must make a decision. Will I live in the realm of God, or will I live in the realm of the world? Listen to me. That is what your decision about being a follower of Jesus Christ is all about. The decision you make as, as, a, as a sinner is that you make by the power of God opening your eyes and allowing you to see this world at, at war with one another, a decision has to be made. Will I follow Christ in advancement of his kingdom, not only in my life, but in the life of, of the world as I know it, or will I allow myself to be ruled by my own desires, my own wants, my own prerogatives and preferences? You see, following Jesus Christ is not a get-out-of-jail or get-out-of-hell-free card. 
so that one day in eternity you can spend it in a place of joy and not a place of torment. That's a latter part of the gospel message. The gospel message is that we have been given an opportunity to be a part of a kingdom of light and not a kingdom of darkness, but that means we must bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And so we need to recognize this morning that because of this war, I've got to make a decision. I've got to make a decision whether I'm going to choose my own sin or God's righteousness. Am I going to choose to take God's resources that he's given me and use them for his glory or my own consumption? Am I going to look towards my own life, towards my own entertainment, instead of giving God the worship that he deserves? Joshua in his day had a decision that had to be made, and he said this to his people, and I say this to us as a church, choose this day whom you will serve. Is it going to be yourself? Is it going to be others? Or is it going to be God? Now you ask the question, how do I know whom I'm serving? The answer to that question is found in the answer of everyday questions. How I spend my time, how I spend my talents, how I spend my treasure. Where do I find my most joy? Where do I find myself dreaming about? If you want to know whether you are for, with God or, or for self, You can ask those questions, and if you're honest with yourself, you will get a pretty good idea of where you're at. So how do we find victory over this enemy? We've got to detect the world's methods. What's the world doing? How does the world get so much sway over both believers and non-believers alike? It's subtle. It's a game of redirection. And, And... And what it does is it wants to redirect some things in our lives. And this is where we find ourselves back in our passage this morning of 1 John. John has told us, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't play it both ways. But what's in the world? What's its methods? Notice three things. It's the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride. And so we see three things that we have to look at this morning and ask the question, are we being redirected and not even knowing it? So let's look at the first one. Uh, The world seeks to redirect our appetites, our appetites. I'm not talking about um, that uh, we were once meat eaters and now we're going to be vegans, okay? Or that uh, we eat GMO foods. I'm really going to get people fired up. GMO foods. And now we're going to eat all organic. That's not what what, what John is talking about when he speaks of our appetites. When the Bible speaks of appetites, it always is speaking about the things of the flesh. Most importantly, usually, issues surrounding the sexual arena. And the question is this morning, is are we going to fulfill the hungers we have as human beings according to our creator, or will we seek to fulfill those hungers on our own. And those hungers aren't just sexual. They, they can be all sorts of hungers that we have as human beings. And the question is this morning, will we trust that God who created us knows what those hungers are because he created them in us, and because he knows them that he will fulfill them, listen, in his own perfect time, in his own perfect way. That's one decision. Yes, I will trust that. Yes, I will believe that. I will have faith in that. Or I can have them whenever and however I want them, and I will be the determiner of when those things get fed. That's the decision. And that aspect of the world is alive and well today. Nobody is saying, that human beings don't have appetites. Nobody is saying that human beings don't have certain urges and passions and desires. The argument is, who's going to fulfill that appetite? And the world says, if it feels good, do it. 
if it feels right to your body and to your psyche, then that must be it. And as Christians, listen, what we are arguing is not that those feelings and those urges aren't real urges and feelings. What we must say with one clarion voice is those urges, those feelings, those desires must be placed under the mantle of God and his word. That's the ball game. And we need to recognize that this morning. And the church has missed that for a long time. I grew up in, in a generation where, especially in the sexual realm, it, it was spoken of as, as something dirty, as something that was, was not to be talked about, as something that, that uh, yes, it, it takes place, but, but leave it in the bedroom. And what has happened is the church was ill-prepared for the war that the world was going to throw its way. And we misstepped and we blew it in some ways and the world has seemingly won some battles. Oswald Chambers wrote that love can wait and worship endlessly. But lust says, I must have it all and have it now. Is there some appetites right now that you are saying, I've got to have it now? Teenagers, we, we struggle with this. I remember as a teenager, I don't know how many times I came into my parents' uh, room and, and told them, if I don't have this, I'm going to die. As a kid, it was toys. As a teenager, it was a car and clothes. As a young adult, it was sex. As an older adult, it's a house or a vacation or a spouse. If I don't have this, I will die. That is the lust of the flesh. Are you going to allow the world to dictate how those desires are taken care of? Or will you direct yourself under the banner of Jesus Christ in his word? Notice second. The aspirations, the desires of the eye. This is a different kind of lust. It's a lust for things, possessions. And we as Americans, my goodness, this is the, the world system of materialism. And Christians, we have absolutely fallen prey to it more than we would ever want to admit. A lust for things, more things, better things, nicer things, newer things, more beautiful things. The world tells us over and over again in 30-second sound bites that two things are true. Number one, you may own something, but it's bad, and it's lost its luster. And number two, we've got the answer to that dilemma. Have you noticed that? In every advertisement, it's telling you two things. One, whatever you do have is terrible, and you got to get the new thing they're advertising. And Christians, we fall for it all the time. We fall for it because we find our contentment in things instead of our contentment with God. Now, does that mean that we can't have new things, that at times we can't go out and purchase things? No, but the question is, is your life, do you work for the things? Do you get up and get fired up about the things, or do you get up and get fired up about God? Is he number one? Does every financial decision, every purchase that you made, is it funneled through uh, the word of God and through what God has done for you? And, and I'm going to say something that will be offensive to some of you, and, and that's fine. I, I don't know what else to tell you. But, but I'm going to tell you this, and I'm going to be as honest and open as I can. If you're not giving to the work of God and his kingdom, you have fallen prey to the world and its system. Because what you have said is God is not important. And you have may, may have made that decision out of ignorance or out of incredible uh, insubordination. Whatever your decision is, if you have said, this money is mine, it belongs to me, you have told God, God, you may rule the world, but you do not rule my wallets. And I'm going to tell you that you are in the world more than you would know. Be careful. The world is eroding, even as a follower of Jesus Christ, it is eroding your kingdom ability to bring glory to God in all that you do. Change that. Seek to honor God with every dollar you spend. 
Remembering, listen, remembering that he is going to evaluate what we have done in this world for him. And I can assure you that when I get to heaven, God isn't going to care what 5B's catering did in a fiscal year. Or what kind of house I lived in. Or what kind of car I drove. Or where I went on vacation. God's going to ask the question, what eternal things did you do for this kingdom, Bedal? And what do you have to show for it? The final thing that John speaks about is what is called the pride of life. John tells us that the world seeks to redirect who's number one. Since the beginning, God has made one thing clear. He's numero uno. And he's the greatest. He is to be the greatest pursuit and the greatest desire of his creation. But the world says it's not about God. It's about you and me. And so we go about building our lives with one thing in mind. To show how truly great you and I can be. To make the world know how great we really are. To go to great lengths to make this a reality. You don't think this is true? Look to the magazines. Look to the the, the television. We idolize people who have made themselves great and we want to be like them. We want to dress like them. We want to talk like them. We want to drive the cars that they drive. Listen, the reason why advertisers use celebrities to sell their products is because they know that if you have a desire to be like another human being instead of being like God, you will go and buy that product if someone's advertising it. Why? Because if I drive that car, I will look like Brad Pitt. (laughs) If I buy those jeans... I'll be like Katy Perry. I'll be like the Kardashians. If I wear that cologne, if I, I mean, you name it. If I eat that cheeseburger, I'm going to be like so-and-so. And when you get that thinking in mind, what you have done is devalued God and his place in your life, and you've elevated self saying, I want to be like another human being. I want to be like them. And so, is your direction in life to do all that you can So that one singular thing can be said of you. That individual lived to bring glory to God or glory to self. And if it's more about yourself or myself, we're living in the realm of the world, not the realm of God. So let's ask this question. How do we respond? We have to determine how we will respond Notice in this, go ahead and flip the slide for me, Dennis. Uh, in this third point, we've got this idea of, of how, what we've got to do. How, how do we respond to this? We have these two worlds that are battling our allegiance, and we've got to ask the question this morning, what am I going to do about it? And there are three responses, and I want to look at them very quickly. Number one, what you can do in this world is you can embrace it. You can embrace it. Some Christians find themselves like a frog in the kettle. You know the story, the frog's in the kettle and it's warming up, but because they're in this warming kettle, they never recognize that the temperature is gradually getting warmer and warmer before they know it, they're dead. And there are Christians this morning, even in this place, who are enjoying the warm water of living for self. We lower our standards every little bit, each and every day, each and every year, that we can't remember what standards we had in the first place. Still others are less dramatic. You embrace the world and its ideas when we don't devote ourselves to God and his working in our lives. What I mean by that is you really believe that you can be neutral in this war. That you can just kind of float along. I'm a Christian on one side, but, but I sure do like what I watch on TV. I sure do like uh, uh, what I'm doing with my friends. I sure do like what I, what I explore on the internet. And you think that you can be in neutral. The book of James says that even friendship with the world makes you an enemy with God. You can't have two masters. You're either going to love the one and hate the other. And so some of you are embracing it this morning. And you think you're okay. The Bible says that people who live in that lukewarm kind of attitude, Jesus says in the book of Revelation, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You're neither hot nor cold. And, and I, I'm no Greek scholar, but I don't think it's a good thing to be vomited out by Jesus. Okay? And I think we need to ask ourselves this question this morning. It was, as Jesus looks at, it, at our lives, 
Does it make him sick? Does his stomach get turned when he looks at, at this neutral, you know, kind of in, kind of not kind of life? There are some, though, on the other side of the spectrum, you choose to escape it. Some Christians have looked at our culture and looked at our world and say it's too far gone. Boy, especially after this week, you, you really want to remove yourself from it, to disengage from it, or maybe to simply just get what you need from it and leave. The escape plan is seen when we can't remember, listen, the last time we had a meaningful conversation with our neighbors or our coworkers. When in our circle of influence, we only know of believers. Now, I understand we've got to make decisions. And those are hard decisions. And I get that there's some sickness out there. But, but be careful. And, and here's how I would liken it. During the, and we don't understand this now, but flu season will be fast approaching us, right? And, and there will be times where you will look at an individual and you will know that they have either just headed to the bathroom and done their thing or they're about to go there again. And I would say that when you see a person that sick, what do you do? You stay away, right? You don't go up and hug and kiss that person when they're green in the face. You recognize there is a flu going on. But that doesn't mean during flu season, listen, that you don't engage with anybody. You can't do that, right? So we've got to be careful. We've got to wash our hands. We've got to make sure that we, we recognize when someone's sick that we stay away from it. Here's the problem. Some Christians have said, because there's flu out there, I have to remove myself and put a bubble around myself so that I never get the flu. Here's the problem you're going to learn next week. The flu's inside of you as well. And so the only thing you're doing is when you put your bubble around yourself is just contaminating yourself by yourself. And what we need to be careful with as a church and as Christians, and it has huge implications, is recognize I live in a world of sickness. And there is a risk that as I engage with this world of sickness, I may get the flu. But I'm going to do all that I can to protect myself in right ways to engage as much as possible so that I can be the light of Christ. Some of us are embracing this culture. Some of us are escaping it. Brothers and sisters, the Bible says engage it. You're to be salt and light. Why? Because we live in a world of darkness. We live in a world that needs to be purified and and preserved. And, And so what we see in the New Testament over and over again is not this leaving of culture, not this abandoning of culture and waiting for some rapture to take place. No, brothers and sisters, the Bible says that we should live upright and holy lives until he comes. That as we preach and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, we hasten the day of the Lord's coming. So it's not sit back in in our Christian lazy boys and wait for the coming of the Lord. It is engaging it with the mind that God has not finished his work here on earth. And here's why. If God wanted us to escape from this world, he would have raptured us out the second we came to know Jesus. But he hasn't. And the reason why he hasn't is he has called you to go into all the world and make disciples. And that's our calling. We've got to engage it. And I know it's hard. I know it it can be scary at times. But don't allow, even in the midst of some heartbreak this week, to allow your light to be diminished because of darkness. Here's what we know to be true. The church shines brightest when the world's at its darkest. Can I tell you something? The days for Village Bible Church, the best are yet to come. Oh, I might tell you something. We may go down to one service one day. Maybe there'll be a few less of us here, but I'll tell you what, the kingdom of God is going to advance in a world of persecution and pain so much more than it does in our times of comfort and ease. And we need to recognize that and be ready for it. So what do we do? I've got to close this out. There are four simple truths that I want you to walk away from this message on. And some of them are deeply found in in the scriptures others are deeply found in in more of the totality of what scripture shows us so there may be a bible verse for one and maybe all of our theology of scripture comes for another one but here's the first one don't be stupid this is serious business 
my wife hates when I use the word stupid. But here's the important thing to remember about this. Some of us are so ignorant to this war that we are not doing anything to discern the spirits that are around us. Some of us are watching things and laughing at things and enjoying things that the Bible has clearly said the person of God stay away from. Some of us are engaging in things. Things that God has called us for our own good to run away from and we're hugging it and we're embracing it and we're petting it as if it's this little cute puppy dog. And we learned that that's not the case. The devil seeks to destroy. We have become lax in our understanding of what church is and why we exist as a people of God. This may seem legalistic to you, and I I run the risk of it sounding that way. But some years ago, and I'm not talking long, four or five years ago, as we have tracked attendance, it was a pretty weak Sunday when 80% of our congregation was at church on a given week. 80%. That meant 20% were out doing other things, good things, noble things. We're not judging that. They were just gone. We had 75% of people in small groups. Both today, those numbers are now 50%. 50%. Now you say, well, hey, I, we got to go on vacation sometime. I get it. I go on vacation. I recognize that. I got to work. I get it. I got another job. I understand it. There are things going on. I get it. But, but I want to remind you, if the church, listen, if the church understands its place, is, is a place where weary soldiers come in from a battle to home base to recoup themselves, to heal themselves, and be reminded of the mission that they're on so they can go on another week's mission, then we're missing it. Because we walk into this place like it's nothing. That there isn't a battle going on. And we have to make sure, and please don't hear me wrong, we've got to make sure that all the comforts are there, that the church starts on time uh, at the right time so it works in your schedule, so you got your cup of coffee. I mean, the churches are, are drowning themselves in ways to try to attract people. Let me tell you how you ad- attract real believers. You tell them there's a battle going on, and this is home base. And that we need one another. We're, we're going to need one another. We're going to need God's word in our lives. And, 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 and we're going to make sure that as we fight this battle, we recognize who the allies are and who the enemies are. And we help one another in that way. As parents, so many of us show our children lives that are saturated with the world and not Christ. And you wonder why. Your kids are looking at the things they are. You wonder why you, your kids are, are, are half the Christian in your opinion than you are. Let me tell you something. If you're not showing your children what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and making the hard decisions, your children will never do that for themselves. Don't be stupid. It's a war out there. Number two, don't be schizophrenic. Choose your side carefully. You've got a choice to make. Are you going to serve God or are you going to serve yourself and the world? Nobody can make that choice for you. Listen, if you use the excuse, I go to Village Bible Church and they preach the word, that's a lame excuse. Choose this day whom you will serve. Not who your pastor serves or your elders serve or or your spouse serves or your parents serve. Today, there's a war going on. Which side are you going to be on? Don't be schizophrenic. You can't go back and forth. You have to choose today whom you're going to serve. Number three, don't be squeezed. The world wants to mold you. I'm going to gross you out for a moment. When I was a young husky boy, I wanted to wear what all the, all the skinny guys were wearing in jeans. And stonewash was the jean. You remember the stonewash days? Well, they didn't have stonewash in the husky section. They had farmer blue. And back in the day, we went to Farm and Fleet to get our jeans. Some of you remember that. When there were no fitting rooms. The fitting room was in the middle of the aisle. And I remember I wanted a pair of jeans. And they weren't my size. But I was bound and determined to squeeze myself into them. And and if you remember what your mom used to do, she used to turn her hand, you know, like a shoehorn. Pull, you know, how's it feel in the crotch? You remember those days. Okay, maybe you didn't live it. Maybe it was just me. 
But what the world wants to do is advertise the shiny new pair of shoes, the cool new clothes. And again, I'm speaking in metaphor here. But it advertises this, and it knows it's, it's, you're not going to fit into them. And so you're on the ground in the world saying, man, just pull a little harder, suck it in a little more, squeeze in. That's what Romans 12, 2 says, when you do not conform yourself to this world. Don't allow the world to squeeze you in. And so when you start feeling the world starting to squeeze you in, you need to step out of that and say, this is not for me. I am called to something else. And what that calling is, is to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, Romans 12, 2. I'm not going to believe the lie. I'm going to believe the truth of Scripture. I'm going to allow God to lead and guide me. I'm going to allow God to be my leader. One final truth, and we'll close this out. And this is important, and this is for you as a church, as we have gone through a difficult week as a nation. Don't forget this. We've sung about it already this morning. Don't be scared. God reigns supreme. That would have been a perfect place for the church to yell out an amen. You missed it. Don't try to do it now. Okay? I can't tell you that the battle with this world is going to be easy. That it won't be filled with great times of suffering. I believe now, probably more than ever, as, as was articulated on the news, I had Noah with me, and I, I looked to Noah, and I said, Noah, your, your job in life as a Christian just got harder. But God is faithful. And God is greater than this. I was struck by the words of, of a song that I remember singing as a young kid. I believe it was by Mr. Gaither, the, the great songwriter. He wrote this, My Redeemer lives and because he lives i can face tomorrow because he lives all fear is gone because i know that he holds the future that life listen even in this world is worth the living just because he lives doesn't matter what a bunch of people in robes say about it they can't put jesus back into the tomb can they he lives And because he lives, we serve a God who reigns supreme over the universe. The one who's on his throne, he wasn't wasn't thrown back by this. He wasn't surprised by this. He is on his throne, and he's able to address everything that concerns us today. So, live confidently, not cocky. Live steadfast, not stubbornly. And know that you're in a battle against this world system, but that this battle has already been won. Let's pray. Father God... Again, I thank you for the patience of your people in articulating these truths. And I pray just a simple prayer, Lord, help us in this fight. Wherever we may be fighting it, Lord, help us. Lord, I pray that every one of us would stop and say, help me, Lord Jesus. Lead me, Lord Jesus. Guide me, Lord Jesus. That apart from you, Lord Jesus, I can do nothing. So I ask for you to be ever-present in my life. That is my prayer, and I pray that it's the prayer of every heart this morning. Now, Lord, send us forth from this place in fellowship that we may heal one another's wounds, we may encourage the timid and, and strengthen the weak who have endured another week in this world, that we would confess our sins one to another so that we might pray for one another and help one another in our hour of need, that we might carry one another's burdens so that we might be the church you've called us to be. Oh, yes, Lord, the the light may be getting dimmer in this little neck of the woods, but we know in those moments the gospel shines brighter. So give us, with a greater sense of urgency, the calling to announce the gospel and proclaim and live the gospel to all who we come in contact with, so that we might win this world for you. We love you. And now, Lord, we give you the glory for all that has been done in this service. Send us forth now in peace, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.